Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so delighted. The guys are in the studio for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. If you have a question, let us know what it is, because we would love to have your question answered by our esteemed panel of pastors, theologians, thinkers. And because so few are available, I've got these guys. <laughs> Man. Yeah, I saw that one coming. Uh, I wanted to just learn to guard my heart around you. I was open. Oh, I was oh, happy to hear your voice. And here we are. Oh, we've got Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. Gentlemen, welcome. Good Thanks, to be here, Bill. Bill. Good to re- be here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we've got time for your question. Let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. All right, I want to start with a verse out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that says, um, for the word is uh, to them, the word of the cross to them that is perishing is foolishness, but for unto us who are believers, it is the power of God. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's talk about the idea that the cross is foolishness to people. Why aren't we supposed to spend all of our time and energy communicating the truth of the cross to people and What's the point if they're lost and perishing? Hmm. Do, do, I, do we understand that correct in the context? Well, I think the context is, is basically trying to point out that those that have that don't respond to the Lord's leading. I mean, we know as Christians, we didn't choose Jesus. He chose us. That we were spiritually awakened by the Holy Spirit. I believe that for a lot of these people, a lot of that same thing is going on. They just say no. Or they just go a separate way, or they just ignore what the Lord has done. And I think the problem is, for them, the whole message of Jesus and the cross looks stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. What are you talking about? And the truth is, for most of us, before we really opened up our heart to Jesus, it didn't look that good either. But once we came to know Jesus, once he opened himself up to us, once he got into our heart, now it's the only thing we can talk about. It's the only thing that really matters. So I think the, the passage is true. But I, I don't think it is true in the sense of there is hopelessness toward those other people. I'm going to witness to those same people, hopefully, until the day I die. And I think all of us here would do that because we never know when the Lord's going to wake somebody up. And he hasn't told me who it is that's going to heaven and who's going to hell. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think and, and somewhat helps to remind ourselves that Paul was writing to a group of people, right, in, in a localized church in the city of Corinth and, and was addressing some of the issues that they might have been wrestling with at yep. that time. And one of the main problems of the city of Corinth was everybody was always trying to one-up each other. And, and they wanted to gain some measure of social or political power. So often in the city, it was filled with entrepreneurs. It was filled with people that, that really were used to exerting power in society around them. And so uh, they're fracturing and dividing all the time in the church community around who has the most power. And Paul is reminding them, well... Uh, for those of you that are interested in worldly power that is going to fade away like the chaff in the wind, right? For those of you that are going to be perishing, putting your, your feet forward on those kinds of pathways where it's going to end relatively quickly for you, the cross is going to sound foolish. Mm-hmm. The idea that you right. give up your entire life, the idea that you would die a hideous criminal death, 
Um, that appears foolish when all of what you're striving for is continued earthly power. And even though that message was for Corinth, I think it's as appropriate for today, right? At the end of the day, I think so many people even decide to sign up for Christianity because they're thinking we're going to have some sort of transactional benefit in power with God. And as opposed to, hmm, you want to sign up for this deal? Why don't you give up your whole life? And and that's really the message of follow me at the end of the day. And if I remember right, before this verse is Greeks look for wisdom— Jews seek for signs, but we preach Christ crucified. Yep. And it's foolishness, not, it's not, it's foolishness to the world because the Jews were looking for signs and miracles. And what do you mean our Messiah got crucified? That's not in our, in our, uh, agenda. And then the Greeks were always looking for wisdom and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Wisdom was a big deal. And again, what do you mean? follow somebody who got killed because he thinks he's the son of God. So it's it's foolishness, not really foolishness, but foolishness to the world. Mm-hmm. Well, the world can pull you in. I just saw a program about John D. Rockefeller. At the turn of the 20th century, so like 1901, he was the richest man in the world. And toward the end of his life, he had gained all these riches, and he had everything you could ask for. Mm-hmm. And somebody said to him, you know, well, how much is enough? And he said, just one dollar more. Mm-hmm. You can see the blindness that comes in. And I think most of us get blind with things, but it's when those get stripped away. It's usually in pain, sorrow, or whatever, that we begin to look beyond that and see Jesus. I like the t-shirt, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. Okay. <laughs> what does it mean to not be wise in your own eyes? Proverbs 3, 7 uh, talks about that. My best understanding of wisdom is the ability to see as God sees in in terms of those things that are good and consistent with the kingdom and those things that are not consistent with the kingdom. So I I think that the only way we can see as God sees is to ask for his wisdom uh, in in New Testament times for the power of his spirit to be able to see in the way that he would see. So wisdom is not necessarily the amount of schooling that you've had or the amount of intellectual acumen that you carry or positions of power. Wisdom actually comes to the people who trust, and it's most often to the people who don't have a lot because then they're not caught by the trappings of what we just talked about. And so the ability to have wisdom is just simply to see as God sees. The uh, definition I heard of wisdom that really hit me hard a number of years ago is that biblical wisdom is the ability to take the Lord's truth that he reveals to us and practically apply it to your life. Now, think about that for a minute. Yep. A lot of people hear the word, but they don't apply it, so the, the wisdom isn't there. When we don't listen to the Lord and we only listen to our own wisdom or what we think is the right thing to do, we can apply it. And sometimes things go well, but in most cases, it's chaos that results in the long term. So it's really listening to the Lord and getting his word and putting that word into effect. And I think do not be wise in your own eyes simply means don't think you're so smart. Mm-hmm. And, I mean— um, some of us know very intellectual people who have degrees who are too smart to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. That's being too too wise in your own eyes. And to be humble is to submit yourself to the truth of Scripture. And even if it doesn't seem right, it's still right. Well, and I think God has an ability to humble you pretty quickly, doesn't yeah. he, at the end of the day? I can think of times where oh, I've been in too. front of my students and I'm like, 
I'm going to crush it with the content today. It's going to come <laughs> off as so smart and intellectual. And I get about five minutes in, I'm like, huh, this mm-hmm. is falling like, you know, just a lump of lead in yeah. front of me right now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this whole thing is about God and not about Capstone at the end of the day. But, boy, we easily fall into those trappings, I think, pretty quickly. Well, when I entered the ministry, I thought it was nine foot nine. <laughs> Look at me now. <laughs> you know, it's been, a, it's been a road the Lord's For taken sure. me on and really cut my legs <laughs> when, off from when underneath I, me. When I graduated from seminary, one of our professors said, mm. uh, now, as you go to your first church, just know that kingdom of God is not arriving with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's a tricky question, and we've gotten this before, but I think it's always good to revisit it. Uh, Recently, an acquaintance uh, committed suicide, complete shock to everyone. Uh, Before he did it, though, he planned his own funeral, including the hymns he wanted sung and the scriptures he wanted read. Wow. So when you are ending your life and you've prepared to that extent... And the question begs, does killing himself uh, prevent or keep him from going to heaven if he was a believer? I know we've addressed this, and I yeah. think we all have kind of but cut if, and dried answers. Let's well, have them again. Here's my cut and dried answer. I'm 13 years old, sitting in confirmation class, and our conservative Lutheran pastor has asked that question. And he quoted First John, where it says, we know that a murderer does not have eternal life dwelling in him. Therefore, yeah, you go to hell if you kill yourself. I... Believed it as a kid, as an adult, if someone truly knows Christ, that sin was atoned for also at Calvary. Mm-hmm. On the other, you know, um, so I think uh, there is forgiveness for suicide, but it's a sin. You'll wreck your family. And if you, you know, it is possible this guy who planned his funeral, I don't know that he really knew the Lord if he did that. You know, maybe he did. And and I, I know a pastor that I respect a lot who buried a woman from his church who was a solid believer, and she killed herself. And he got up and said, um, I believe she went to heaven because what she did was awful, but this sin also—you know, God doesn't judge us by our last action on earth. I mean, if, if he did, nobody would go to heaven. I mean, if you have to—some people think if you kill yourself, you go to hell because you didn't have time to ask for forgiveness. We don't have, to have time to ask for ten, you know, most of our sins. It's the blood of Christ, the grace of God that saves us, not did I have enough time to confess every single sin, which nobody has. Well, I think one of the great tragedies of Christianity in the West is that we have created a drive-through mentality, kind of like going to McDonald's. You know, you go to church, you, you get your hour, you maybe go to Sunday school or go midweek and you go home. But the New Testament is loaded with those one another passages, how we're to take care of one another and submit to one another and forgive one another. And I think the people that I've seen that either have come close to suicide or did commit suicide who claim to be believers, they got isolated. They, and, and the church allowed that isolation to continue. Let's be honest. People that, are, that get isolated like that are not easy to get through to. But the one thing I learned is that I had to keep knocking on people's door. I had to keep calling them day in and day out to see if something would occur. And I think most of us, after one or two tries, say, well, I can't get through. I don't know what to do. But we as the church, and that's what we need. I really believe churches, no matter how big you are, you need to be part of a small group where people hold one another mm-hmm. accountable, pray with one another, listen to one another. And are there for one another. Yeah, I think it's impossible to be dogmatic about this, right? Where you would, yeah. we, we just know for certain. There isn't any scripture that, that is cut and dry that helps us understand entirely. All we know is that uh, at the end of the day, it's God who decides and, and not us. And I sometimes think about this particular issue. I mean, the only unforgivable sin, right, is blasphemy, where people just decide right. to turn away and say, I'm done with this whole deal. And they shake their fist and, and harden their heart towards God. But, you know, if we think about this in terms of degrees a little bit, um, 
the idea uh, of some sort of sexual indiscretion of lust in the heart clearly is inconsistent with the kingdom all the way up to a full-on infidelity. And all of those things are inconsistent with the kingdom. One doesn't take you away from God more than the other. The impact of infidelity is going to be greater than mm-hmm. the sin of just a, a quiet lust of the heart. But both of them are disconnecting us from God. And so you can apply that same kind of rationale and reasoning to even something like suicide or self-harm or you kind of go in degrees and you go forward. Right. And, and all of these things... I, I agree with you, Brock. I think I think yeah. Jesus's cross is far more powerful than we would ever dare yes. hope to believe in so we, some of this stuff. Do we, I, yeah, go ahead, Tom. Do we have time for one more word of hope? Because I think I can offer some hope here. I have I, something depressing to say, but you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, Tom, I've been with, as you know, many dying people. I had one guy who had a near-death experience. In other words, his heart quit. They had to resuscitate him. But he said in that split second from consciousness to where he was gone, it's like the Lord opened up his entire life, and it was like forever in there. And the Lord was talking to him about, you've got to go back and tell them what you've seen. Mm. So I think even in that very split second, at that last moment, that's not a time issue for Jesus in the way he deals with us. He's there, and he knows how to talk to us. And I think we're going to be surprised who's in heaven and probably who isn't. Mm-hmm. A couple of quick comments came in. Uh a listener said, I have completed one cycle of grief share offered at my church. Be careful with the word committed regarding suicide. Mm. I don't know what that means, but I just thought I'd share it. And another, uh, someone else said, God said, send the rapists and murderers to me and I will judge them. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. I will say this though too. Uh, when I had COVID for 18 days, four of those days I was praying for death. And I think I was going a little crazy. Probably were. And I, I can imagine, not that it's right, it's a sin. I can imagine why someone would kill themselves. Mm-hmm. It, oh, sure. if, if you get crazy enough in pain, again, yeah. it's wrong. And if anybody's listening to this, talk to somebody mm-hmm. and don't do it. Sure. But I, I, when people go crazy, I think God judges on a different level. Why yeah. do you think I called you every day? Ba-da-bump. I'm oh, serious. Boy. Yeah, We talked sure. a lot. We, we did? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I oh, want okay. you to know. <laughs> the text line is open. Let me know what the questions are. 877-933-2484. Got a room full of smart uh, guys that are ready to take your questions. If you've had a question that you've always wanted to ask your own pastor, you just haven't gotten around to it or maybe felt reluctant to do so, you can ask these pastors anything you like. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Glad to have guys around the table here ready to take your questions. Guys who talk, they're ready to talk. Just you ask questions, they will respond. 877-933-2484. I want to follow up with another uh, question that came in. Uh, Maybe part of Guy Talk, would you talk, what to say to someone when they have lost a loved one? Or not to say anything at all, how not to say something stupid? I bet everyone has had a comment made. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. That it would was well intentioned, but it just was hurtful. 
Yeah, I, my sister had a baby that died at, I think, nine months or so with a brain tumor, and it didn't help when people said, well, now there's another angel yeah, in for heaven. Sure. Oh. And yeah. Not that they're not well-meaning and not that it's not true, but that it's just a little, you don't, when you're hurting, you don't want anybody to be trite, you know? Yeah, I, so. I think along that same lines, right? When somebody says, well, you lost your daddy and God must have needed your daddy in heaven for mm-hmm. some special job. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can understand the intention, but as a child, you're left thinking, well, what would be more important than my daddy being here with me mm-hmm. in terms right. of growing up? So I think those sorts of trite sayings, yeah. I think, completely avoid. Mm-hmm. I think some, and, you know, this goes back to wisdom a little bit, I think, you guys, is that I, I think we want to have a principle for every situation, but then that principle just becomes a hammer that we use without any kind of thought, whereas wisdom is the ability to see, again, as God sees. And <clears> God, when, when you actually read the Jesus of the text, he's interceding with people in a wide variety of different ways according to their different needs. And so it's one of the reasons why we need to study and learn and grow, because then we have a ton of tools in our toolbox. And at any given moment, right. then following the prompt into the spirit, you decide which tool to bring out. Sometimes you might need to be quiet with somebody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there might be some words to say in the midst Mm -hmm. of that. But this thing is not just some big theological thing we believe. God might actually be real of all things, and God might actually be accessible, and God might actually give us wisdom in those situations then too. So we don't study to become smarter. We we study to to have more tools in the toolbox for when the time comes to minister to people in the various ways we do. My oldest son uh, in high school was a phenomenal kicker. Won football games for Sibley High School. <laughs> but what people didn't see are the countless hours he and I spent on the practice field. Right. And, I mean, we're talking months and months and months of kicking the football and me chasing the football. Uh, it was good. And that's why it was good in the game. He had ability, but then he put it to work. I think that most people in funeral situations, for them, it's a rare event in terms of day-to-day life. There's no training in the church on this that I know of. I've never heard of a class, Kama will teach you how to talk properly at a funeral <laughs> to people that have died or people yep. that are the lost loved ones. And as a result, we get under panic when we talk to somebody and we, we want to say something comforting. We want to say something good, but it just doesn't come out that way because we haven't practiced enough. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to find ways to practice this. I was at a funeral recently. And here's a dear Christian woman that I love, elderly woman. And I just heard her go up to the person who lost their mom and said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I just thought that was perfect. That's Mm -hmm. all you need to say. I was so, you know, Job's friends, didn't they come and sit with Job for seven days before they opened their mouths? And then they opened their mouths, started giving them all advice. And that's when God got mad at the three friends. Normally, when people are hurting, you don't jump in there with advice. You just go, you be with them, be quiet. If the Lord eventually nudges you to open your mouth, then you do. But you don't spout off truisms when they're hurting. The Lord's good. When my first grandson died 18 years ago, we had the funeral home and then at the church. Three months later, I get a call from the funeral home. They go, we know your grandson died here, but we've got a veteran who died. We can't get anybody. Would you consider doing this? The service. Yeah, the service. In the the, uh, chapter. In the same room. Same room where my grandson was three months before. So I said, yeah, I'll stand up and do this. I'll do it. So I get there. I'm pretty blue. I'm pretty blue. The funeral director said, by the way, this is a little different group. This guy was a veteran, but also belonged to a motorcycle gang. I said, okay, I worked with them. No big deal. They're people. So I'm sitting up front about 10 (laughs) minutes. Yes, they are, Tom. Yes, they are. So I'm sitting up front about 10 (laughs) minutes before the service begins. And all of a sudden, a fist fight breaks out between two different groups, rival groups that are there. And I'm watching these guys hitting each other. And the police come and the sirens and everything. The service is 45 minutes late. And I'll be honest, I laughed so hard (laughs) that it was for me a gift 
in that situation. Yeah. Now, I don't think the Lord's always going to provide that <laughs> gift, but I think we need to be the gift to other people in doing just what you said. You don't have to say a whole lot. No, you just, put the fun in funeral, Tom. There you go. <laughs> just look in their eyes, tell them you love them, you know, and that your heart's with them. Yeah. And sometimes that's all that needs to be said. Well, and I think, too, getting back to your kicker example and, and, and being with people like that, sometimes it's not just words. It's actually a practiced empathy where, yeah. where maybe in the, in the back of the last few years of your life, when you actually learn to, to enter into another person's pain, not patronizingly, but actually. And I remember feeling in my sort of early 30s that I didn't really weep over other people's grief very easily or readily. And I thought that probably isn't the best deal in the world. I should probably <laughs> empathize with people on some sort of level and not be so self-centered. Yep. And I went to God to pray about that. And oh man, did he begin to sort of rip yeah, open some things in my heart that were really just that self-absorbed. And, and what emerged from that was the ability to cry pretty easily with people over a period of time. But it took a lot of my own sort of working through my own sinful stuff to get to that point. And, and I think when somebody's in grief, if you can shed tears on their behalf mm-hmm. um, and they're authentic tears, mm-hmm. they're not they're not the false patronizing kinds of tears. Mm-hmm. It just goes a long ways because now you're bearing the burden with them in some ways that I think we're in this thing together. And, and so that practice empathy is a really big deal. And the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those yep, who weep. For of sure. course. Not, not rejoice with those who weep. So you don't jump in there. You know, your father's in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's such a good point, Brock. Yes. Yeah. Nice job. Uh, another question. My older son has a lot of questions I can't answer. One question is wanting to know, what is heaven going to be like? Like when Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise, what will paradise look like? I heard somebody once say, take the best day you've ever had, the most excitement you've ever had, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, and multiply that by a trillion, and you'll be about a third of the way there. Mm. It is beyond anything we can comprehend, because we have lived in a world of sin, of brokenness, of fear. We don't know what it's like to have ultimate joy. We don't know what it's like to be in the Lord's presence face to face. So in terms of uh, streets of gold, which the, the, you know, the Bible talks about in that, I think that's much less the issue than being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints that have gone before us. And I think that's going to be an incredible time and it will go on forever. Yeah. I mean, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared, right? I, I think we just can't possibly know. But I think my favorite literature example would come from the last battle of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, when C.S. Lewis is writing about these children who have now exited the shadow lands of the false Narnia and into the true Narnia, and they describe the true Narnia as a place where every day is better than the last, mm-hmm. ever up and ever in. And so every day, you, you just, you can't exhaust the wonderful richness of God. I mean, when it says no. that he is inexhaustible, then that does mean that every single day for all eternity is better than the last. And I think that sometimes we reduce God way too far. And if we just start in that place to say, his riches are inexhaustible. It just means that for infinity, every day is better than the last. I can't, my mind can't conceive that uh, in any way. Bill, I must burst into song. Go ahead. Just think of stepping on shore, you know this song? And finding it heaven, of taking a hand, and finding it God's, of breathing new air, and finding it celestial, of waking up in heaven, and finding it home. Do you guys know that song? No, I, I do love, now. That's I amazing. love that song. It's even better when somebody sings that. That was sort of Emily there. Blunt <laughs> met, uh, met Tom Brock from Mary Poppins. Ooh, that was really ooh. good. That was really good. She's I love cute. that. I overheard a conversation at a funeral. I, I wasn't doing it, but it was a good one. Yeah, we'll have to pick that up okay. after the break. Not a yeah, problem. We're going to put that on hold, uh, Tom Parrish. I'll keep singing. 
No, no, please don't. Please don't. No, no, we're not, we're not, we're not going to say I'm getting the soundtrack. Ow. We're going to take a little break, uh, come back. We're going to talk about uh, is cessationism biblical? What is a, a cessationist? Let's try to say that. <laughs> and other things, too. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. They're here, ready to take your questions. 877-933-2484. Some great questions coming in. Let me see if I can go through this one quickly. Um, Will the pastors talk about forgiveness, please? Specifically, doesn't God ask us to repent in order to receive his forgiveness? Like the two men who were crucified alongside Jesus, one repented and was welcomed into paradise, but the other one didn't and remained in his sin and eternally separated from God. Some say that Christians should forgive others unconditionally, even if they don't express or demonstrate repentance. Others teach that being forgiving means to always be ready and willing to forgive when the Spirit moves a person to repent. Any insights would be greatly appreciated. Have at it, guys. All right, let's say that somebody has deeply wounded you. According to to the first uh, understanding, you don't forgive them until they come and say, look, I'm sorry. Then you forgive them. Uh, I I suppose you could try to make a case for that biblically, but you know when you're when somebody doesn't come and ask your forgiveness, Jesus said, "Love your enemies." I think part of that means that even if they don't ask for my forgiveness right. in prayer, I forgive that person, right. and not just partly. I do that for my sake, not for theirs. I don't want to carry this around all day. So if somebody snaps at me, I privately say, "Lord, I forgive Mrs. So and So in Jesus' power, not my own." And amen. So I think you forgive everybody everything. God is going to judge the world, and we're not God. But in the meantime, he tells us to love our enemies. They don't escape their sin if they don't repent. Yeah. But the difference is what we do with it. And I learned a real lesson from the Lord a long time ago. Uh, I got hurt very bad by someone, and I was bitter. I mean, really bitter. And it's not good to be a parish pastor and be bitter. No, no, Tom. That's <laughs> not good. It doesn't work very well. I had to work around that one. And it took me a number of months. But what it finally dawned on me after reading Scripture is, Tom, you forgive them for my sake, not for their sake. What I have done for you, it is my shed blood. That's what you do it for. And once I understood that, I could actually walk in forgiveness. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them on the cross for they know not yeah. what they do. Nobody came up and asked his forgiveness. He forgave them. Uh, at the cross. So I, 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 there, on the other hand, it is nice when people repent. Of course it is. And th- you forgiving them doesn't mean God does. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Yeah. There, there are people that I, that I have forgiven, but what it does is it frees me yes. from the bitterness, yes. the anger, and, and the you, doorway to... And, and you got to uh, pray through that. It can be yeah. a process. It is a process. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I was thinking about when Jesus tells Peter to, to forgive 70 times 7, right? right? And it's yep. not, well, if I can just forgive this person 490 times, I can be done with this deal, right? It, it's That's not <laughs> the invitation. It's it's more of a perpetual heart or a state of forgiveness that he's inviting Peter into. And I think a forgiveness means that you're not holding somebody's trespasses against them um, and holding that grudge. I, I think that's where the freedom comes in this. But I think we have to be careful and say that just because you are a person of perpetual forgiveness where you see 
the other person as still an image-bearing child of the king, and you still hope for them, and you still desire for them, and you still want to intercede and pray for them, and all of those sorts of things are true, that doesn't mean you're the doormat for them. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that if somebody continues to wound you, that you just keep coming back for more, and you you put the boundaries up, you do what's needed to to be safe relationally or physically or spiritually or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. But, but there's that distinction between doing that and not still longing for the best for them, right? Don't hold their trespasses against them. That's one of the high. I don't know that a human is capable of doing that. I think that is only available through the power of the kingdom to be the kind of person that doesn't hold the trespasses against someone, even while you might be putting up the boundaries that are necessary to stop the pain from happening. But isn't this true? The people that have bugged me the most in life, by the grace of God, I really don't want them to go to hell for eternity. Mm -hmm. I, I, I haven't gotten to that point but sometimes you see people at the on the news during court time where you get to confront the killer. I hope you burn in hell for eternity. And, you know, once you know Christ and that you're a sinner that deserves hell yep. for eternity, you just can't go there. Yeah, you know? you in my first congregation, I had a woman in her late 30s come to me and said, my uncle is dying. I feel I should go see him. I said, okay, go see him. And she says, but you don't understand. He molested me as a child. And even though I tried to talk to my parents, nobody would believe me. He has never repented of it, and I've lived with bitterness. But I feel, and she had recently come to the Lord Jesus Christ. She said, I feel I've got to go offer forgiveness. And I said, okay, you know, and she went. I offered to go with her, but she said, no, I'm going to go. She went, and over two days she sat with him as he's dying, and he would not admit to it until finally the last day. And then he broke down in tears and cried and cried, repented, and she led him to Jesus, and he died literally in her arms. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the word that's a little bit hard to say, cessationism. What was that, Bill? What was that word? Cessationism. I heard cinnamon. Is that what I heard? It's the view that the miracle gifts of tongues and healing have ceased. Is that biblical? Some very conservative, often Baptist-type churches, believe that when John put down his quill... After writing the book of Revelation about 95 A.D., we'll say, all the gifts, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit stopped, speaking in tongues, prophecy, etc., because, and they quote the verse from 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. And they believe the perfect is the completion of Scripture, so now we don't need the supernatural gifts anymore. Well, read 1 Corinthians 13. When the perfect comes, they're talking about Jesus. They're not talking about the New Testament being completed. So I think all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still here. You know, uh, speaking in tongues, all of them. Now, do them right. Do them the way Paul says to do those gifts in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. But nothing says that they stop. Sensationists have a 2,000-year problem. And the problem is, and I've been fortunate to travel the world, there are miracles that occur all the time. In India and elsewhere where I've been, I've seen miracles here. I've seen people that literally should have died and didn't. I've seen people with cancer, and suddenly the cancer is gone after a lot of people were praying. So it's kind of hard to do that. I mean, I have to wind up denying that all these things must be false, you know, if it all ended back then. No, I see it. Jesus said, greater things will you do than I have done. And believe me, you know, raising people from the dead and casting out demons is about as big as it gets. Yeah, this is one of those issues, right, that has a lot of nuance to it, too, in terms of uh, God's activity among us. So I think if you just start with the premise, is God still active among his people? Yeah. 
then then I think we can all fairly say, yes, that's probably true. In what ways might God be active among his people? Like we don't often think about the maybe an answer to prayer or or maybe just a bit of insight or wisdom or or something like that as God inter- interacting with us. We we get concerned with these really big gifts that, or that they're the ones that have maybe ceased. Like we see them as big, right? For God, obviously, they're not like, oh, this one was tougher for me than the other ones, you know? <laughs> um, so we see speaking in tongues or raising people from the dead. Or the, these are where the question mark comes in. And we have dealt with snake oil salesmen and, mm-hmm. and women in this issue in, in terms of being really false about all of this. But I think we have to be really careful and fair-minded to just say, well, just because that's true, right. that there have been snake oil people uh, propagating things that are not true doesn't mean that these gifts have absolutely ceased. And when you, you can talk to a lot of trusted scholars around the world, and Parrish, I know you've traveled the world and seen this stuff. And there's been somebody that, Bill, you've had on the show, Craig Keener, a number of times, who is as respected and conservative of, of a theologian as mm-hmm. I've ever met. And he married a PhD woman from Ethiopia, I believe she was. And I mean, they, her her cousin or sister, somebody was raised from the dead. And these are these are very sober-minded, careful, yep. thoughtful people. And Keener said after he traveled from Western culture to African culture, his whole theology changed just based on what he's seen. And that's a person that I would trust. He's not a snake oil salesman. Yep. So I think we're, wherever we land on this, what, maybe one more piece, as I was talking to my buddy, who I think is, again, one of the more fair-minded theologians I know about it recently. And he said, you could maybe make a case for sort of a geographic cessationism, meaning that we don't see a lot of it in the United States because maybe we don't really know how to look anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we've been so um, conditioned by enlightened, intellectualized, theological-based culture that God has become a series of ideas for us that we divide over what's true and false as opposed to a being with whom we relate. And I can say this in, in response to that. So many of my young kids, I will ask them, are you in relationship with God or a relationship with ideas about God? And oh boy, does the class get quiet at that moment. And then we start talking about what are reliable means to maybe interact with the actual God of heaven, where it's not snake oil, it's actually real. And and what does that look like? And I too have been burned by people that have words from the Lord for me that never come true and (laughs) and all this stuff. But you're saying, Peter, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because some people misuse the gift of tongues, prophecy, words of the Lord, does not mean there aren't valid Tongues, prophecies, words of the Lord. And Paul, and what, John just says, you got to discern the spirits. Sure. When you have cancer like I did several years ago, even if you go to a quack doctor <laughs> and you find out they're a quack, you don't come away saying, I will never go to a doctor That's again. That's right. That's a great analogy, No, you go yeah. looking for somebody who is competent. And even for the pulpit or teaching, there are competent and there are incompetent people, and you have to discern. Yeah, love that. Here's a question, and this has been prefaced as being an odd question. There was an eclipse in 2017 across the U.S., and another will happen seven years later, making an X over the United States. I'm alarmed and wondering if this is some sort of sign from God, and if this is something Jesus alluded to in Luke 21. How should Christians pay attention to eclipses, constellations, and other events in the night sky? Well, what was it? Was it five years ago when the blood moon? The, blood moons. <laughs> the, the blood super moons. blood moon. That yes. means the end has come and Jesus is returning because the blood moons have happened. What, Stop using you... that scary voice. <laughs> scary <laughs> voice. That's my preacher voice. Okay. That's true. That's even scarier. I just remember a, a guy who can really preach on TV was making a big deal about the blood moons. Okay. What happened? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. So I take that stuff with a big grain of salt. Well, we have to be careful with it. And what I mean by careful is this. Yes, the Lord could use something like that. I don't think any of us are going to say he cannot. However, I still go back to the principle of the Reformation, that we don't make doctrine 
or binding truth out of anything in Scripture unless there are two clear passages that talk about it. And I think too often we grab onto one piece of Scripture, and we don't know the full context. We don't know what it's ultimately saying, but we see it and we like it, and then we start graphing it onto things that are going on. Instead, you know, I take it seriously, but I take it cautiously, and I say in the end, it doesn't matter because Jesus will have the final word. Yeah, I, I mean, you can look back through history, and history is littered with examples of people who are trying to read the signs and the stars and, yes. and, and the different sort of symbols that might portend the end of all things. And clearly there is some sort of cosmic reality that is part of the wrapping up of this era on Earth. But I think about Y2K, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. all thought yeah. that the, the planes were going to drop out of the sky. Everything yeah. was going to shut down. I remember watching Australia with bated breath. You know, maybe the end was going to start there and sweep the rest of the world, <laughs> right? Or yeah, a few years ago when the Mayan calendar came to an end, we actually had a little countdown clock in my class. And I kept saying, you know, it's a high-risk move for you guys. You don't have to do your final if you think this Mayan calendar actually is the end of all things that's coming up sort of thing. And, of course, there's so many of these yep. kinds of signs that uh, there's something there, but I think to overread some things, and that might Gary be Gary DeMar has a very good book on this topic where he talks about these kind of things. He, and he's a great historian and church historian. He said in the last 2,000 years, if you average it out every 10 years— from the time Jesus rose from the dead till now, there has been a major prediction in the world of the second coming and that was going to occur because of this event that was going yeah. to happen or that event. And you think about that. That's a lot of, yep. of speculation. And that's going on right now with the COVID and yeah, the, sure is this is the end. And, and you know, notice what Jesus said. When you, there will be wars and rumors of wars yeah. and famines and earthquakes. The end is not yet, is right. what he said. And people see that and they think, oh, that means we're in the end if there's an earthquake. No, he says the end is not yet. Well, so. when you breathe your last breath in this world, that is the end. Yes. And you better be ready for that moment. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Here's a question. What does it look like to turn the other cheek? I love the awkward pause. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's well, I, I think most of us here, if we really love Jesus and follow him, have learned, have gone through that. And okay. it, it's not an easy thing to do because my ego gets in the way, my attitude gets in the way. And turning the other cheek usually takes me about six months after the Lord has to kind of <laughs> whack me over the head. But it is something we want to do because ultimately it's very hard to present the gospel and to represent Jesus in this world when you're carrying anger and bitterness toward other people. Yeah, I I read a uh, teaching on this not too long ago that uh, is compelling to me. I still haven't necessarily verified the history of the entire thing, but I've heard more people talk about it since that in that time, um, when somebody was slapped across the cheek, it was usually a posture where they were being backhanded, and it was a posture that they were uh, to submit and to surrender sort of as slave to master. And so to mm-hmm. offer the other cheek is to be able to say, you cannot backhand me again. That it doesn't mean that I'm going to use my power against your power. It just means I'm going to stand in a different kind of power, and you can do this. But it isn't, again, becoming a doormat. Uh, there is something about uh, standing firm right. in what you believe and offering your other cheek even so, and it sort of strips away the false power of the master. Right. I think it's Walter Wink if people want to look it up. It's a really good article. Cool. Take one more break. You were listening to Guy Talk with the guys that talk. If you have a question, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Maybe about a question you've always wanted to ask your own pastor or just really can't bring yourself to do it. You can ask these guys. They're here to answer your questions. 877-933-2484.
Welcome back to Guide Talk. Interesting book by David Murrow. I've had him on the show once. He wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. (laughs) 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 And here is uh, some of his points. He said the church is formed for the stereotypical woman. Services require long attention spans of a particular kind which are unsuited to men. Men fear that they need to give up their masculinity both as a man and as a provider and there is a lack of male leadership, no guys, guys. Not a problem. The last few years of my ministry, I, I handed out remote controls when the guys came in. They felt like they were in control and it worked great. <laughs> any well, th- any dare, thoughts on those comments? Dare I bring it up? I, b- biblically, we've got to settle whether women should preach over adult <laughs> men. Now, I'm sorry. First Timothy 2 says they shouldn't. But if if churches for women and all your Sunday school teachers are women, and then you put a woman as the preacher over the church, what does that say to the boys in the church except this is for women. I'm out of here as soon as I can. And, you know, the other thing, I was watching Family Feud. They asked, name a boring place. Number one answer, church. Oh, wow. And, and it's just sad that we need to make—it's not like we're going to— make it an entertainment venue, but we need to preach deep, biblical, uh, fired-up sermons. We need wonderful worship. And uh, if you go, you know, it's it's just sad to go to a really boring church. <laughs> well, hey, are, you, are you trying to bait me over here, Brock, yeah, on this issue? Actually, I, I can feel it. I can, we got 10 minutes. Yeah, no more. I can feel the hook in my mouth right now. <laughs> so, so I will not prescribe, but I will describe the alternative position that mm-hmm. women can be a ministry from a biblical standpoint. Okay. And, uh, and if I could describe that position, it would be taking that Timothy passage. And some people might argue that in that passage, if you could pull it apart in the Greek, it, you would read it as, I don't presently permit women to teach or hold a bossy lording over authority over men. Uh, they must learn in quiet until such a time as they're ready to teach. And that was based on the idea that there was a lot of women from the Temple of Artemis, the key religious temple of uh, of Ephesus at that time, coming into the church <clears throat> and trying to enslave the men in the church that way. So Paul said, you cannot do this. You have not learned anything about the kingdom, so I do not presently permit you to teach. And as you do teach, you're certainly not allowed to have a bossy lording over authority like you do in the Temple of Artemis. Now, I'm just describing that position. And let I'm me not, tell you I'm why not that's suggesting wrong. that's what it is. Let me tell you why that's wrong. Because <laughs> Paul says, for, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. If he had said, for, the Temple of Artemis is down the street, Women hasn't been instructed, etc. But he doesn't say that. He says, for it was not the woman who was created first, it was the man who was created first. It's not with the man who was falling into deception, it's the woman that fell into deception. And something about the way we're made is what makes me say a woman should not be the preacher over at church. So so if I can we're, just describe yes. the yes. alternative <laughs> position of that. No, and one more part. That I just think okay. is interesting about that. The reason why Paul puts the order of creation in there is that the women in the Temple of Artemis were... Um, they, they substantiated their belief that they could be in control because they believed they were created first. So Paul was correcting that issue for them. Again, I'm just describing it's a, it's a big issue. But what I appreciate about the back and forth in this situation is where I don't have any sympathy is following the lead of American culture and teaching us what's true. And, and a lot of people are wanting to lump in racial reconciliation, which I think clearly is upheld by the scriptures with LGBTQ movement, mm-hmm. which I would say clearly mm-hmm. is not upheld mm-hmm. in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they want to lump in the women in ministry thing then too. Yeah. And I think you have to take each of those conversations on their own merits, being informed by scripture and not by being informed by culture in those situations. So mm-hmm. if you put, you know, you could bring John Piper and Gwen Grudem in the room and they would argue one's, uh, one position for women in ministry. And then you could bring N.T. Ryder down 
Dallas Willard and some other theologians uh, into the room, and they would argue a different right. way. So there are different ways in which people have understood the scriptures while keeping the scriptures authoritative. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting issue for well, sure. Well, they are authoritative, but so is what happens in terms of, of the church itself. You look over the last couple hundred years, especially among Baptists, Pentecostals, with a lot of women pastors, they have led more people to Jesus Christ than most of the men have in the Lutheran church, in the Methodist church, in the Presbyterian church. And I'm saying, why would the Lord give them that power and bless them if he was against what they were doing? Hmm. And so I have to look at it and say, whatever way the Lord wants to reach people and bring them to himself is his business. Well, yeah, the Lord uses women hugely. I'm just saying, for some reason, Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says they shouldn't be the preachers or the elders over the church. Was he married? Uh, Paul? Well, he was single when he was saying that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I just... Uh, Comment anyway. just came in. I am a woman and believe women should not teach. I like Our whole her. society has demasculated men. <laughs> Women's lib has gone too far. Well, Amen. that part I would agree with. Independent of anything related to the church, uh, clearly men have been demasculized in a wide variety of ways to the, to the great detriment of our culture. And, you know, also... I think we also ask the question, what has the church believed for 2,000 years? There were not women preachers in the church, just almost none. Uh, The Lutheran church uh, for, what, 500 years didn't have them until 1970. Catholic church still doesn't have them. Orthodox church. Now, are all these people sexist, or is there something about the way we're made that God says women shouldn't have authority over men in church? Or is the Lord doing a new thing now in line with the scriptures? Don't know. Well, I don't think so. I know. But what I'm saying is, in my experience, it has been amazing the women I have seen lead people to Jesus Christ yeah. way beyond a lot of the men. I don't and I'm looking at that and I'm I, saying, what's the Lord doing? Well, then, I mean, if a woman has a wonderful communication gift, let her be a woman's uh, teacher. And but what if the Lord says, no, I want you to preach the gospel? I don't think he would say that because the first Why would somebody come to Christ? Two? Why would somebody come to Christ <laughs> under that God, teaching? God, like God, if God can speak through Balaam's ass, he can speak through me. <laughs> that that doesn't mean that, that God wants donkeys to go up in front of the church. Ba-dum-bump. Yeah, see, I, I mean, I, I have no way of hacking my way out of these weeds at this point. The, these weeds are deep and thick uh, at this point. I think, in fairness uh, to your point, Brock, that the, clearly the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, leading then to the Western Protestant Church, does not have a long history of women in ministry that tended to originate in the time yeah. of Augustine in the in the fourth and fifth century, where he had some specific theologies that prohibited women from teaching. But there is evidence, and quite a bit of it, in non-Western Christian traditions as you follow the Eastern paths and some other paths oh, yeah. of. Christianity in which women have been teachers all the way through I think it's as pretty, well. So. Don't you think it's pretty few, though? Well, No, no, it's much, much deeper than that. I've been reading about this. I don't so. know about that. Those weeds are thick, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to play soft, cool jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you have been great the last four minutes. Oh, boy. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, let's see. Must a Christian couple get married in a church by a pastor for God to recognize or bless the marriage? No. The, no. Ch- the church no. is simply the people of God following Jesus by the power of the Spirit to shine witness in the world. It has nothing to do with a building and a steeple and a sign and a website and a pithy saying on, uh, on you know, your, the front page sort of thing. And so I just did a wedding for a love, lovely Christian couple. They did it at a barn. 
Um, their vows were sacred. God was absolutely intersecting in that time and space with them because the people of God were gathering together. And I think the, the most important thing we can do is get our head around the idea that it's the people of God that are the church, yep. not the idea of a building. Good yeah. word. But and you married him. Does I, it count? Well, <laughs> now that, I don't know about that, Bill. That's an entirely separate question and a fair one at that. I think the question also is, okay, what if an atheist justice of the peace married my wife and I? Are we really married? You really are. Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, here's another question from the previous topic. Why, uh, why are we as women entrusted to teach children, but not adults? Just curious. Does that portray children as less valuable than adults? Go ahead, Tom. I've already tapped, well, I mean, I've already tapped out again, of this conversation. Yeah. Again, everybody, no, no mas. everybody on your own, read First Timothy 2. Paul says the reason he doesn't want a woman teaching adult men is the way we were made. And because the woman fell into deception first with Adam and Eve. And now that's what he says. Whether you like it or not, that's what he says. <laughs> if I yeah. can just just yeah. d- jump into that one more time, because we're talking about the Bible being authoritative. We all agree on that at the panel. Like we all say the scriptures are authoritative. Right. But we're all also going to probably all agree that a given interpretation of scripture may or may not be authoritative. That's and true. so I, this issue really does have a wide variety of faithful, Jesus-following, God-fearing scholars who, who have looked at the scriptures of authoritative and have interpreted them differently. That's right. And th- that is a really hard thing to sort out. If anybody thinks that's like, this is such an easy issue, it but isn't. You and, would, and so, the women, you would agree, though, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. I, well, it, is, it is a binary right. question, for yep. sure. It was yep. the yep. women's Sunday school teachers when I was growing up had the greatest impact on my sure. faith in Jesus. And I am thankful for them. Me too. And I'm thankful for anyone at any stage of life that can <laughs> proclaim Jesus, because I don't hear about Jesus enough in this society. Indeed. Okay, we have a minute left. I just have to do a little housekeeping. A listener said, uh, can you please repeat the two references you gave a few minutes ago? One was a church historian, the other article that Peter shared. Uh, I believe it was Walter Wink, but if somebody wants... Walter Wink? Walter Wink, I think, is the is the theologian that talked about turning the other cheek. Okay. And then who was the church historian? Uh, that was... Uh, it just slipped away from me. That's okay. Senior it, moment. It'll come back. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, not a senior yet. It'll, I, that's true. Um, it'll... <laughs> Text me at 2 in the morning when you think of it. <laughs> if, if, they will, if they will send you an email, I'll be glad to send it to them. Of course, yeah. Thanks, guys. Great, great. Thank yeah, you, fun. Phil. Yep. Thanks. Take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Marcus Bachman is in for the whole hour. We're going to talk about finishing well. That's all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.